I'm Anthony. And I'm Mike. And this is Rocking Malaria. And we're going to talk about how we both got into music. Now I go back a long way, probably further than Chris, back to 1953 when I think I was about six. We had a small holding just outside Hunmanby. And every night during the summer we used to sit and watch the lights come on at Butlin's holiday camp, which you could see, and listen to the radio. And the one song that I always remember is You Belong To Me by Joe Stafford. And I still still play it now after all those years. But I think what really got me into rock and roll was probably two things. One was getting a television. And on television at that time, I think 1956, the BBC started with the first rock and roll programme, which was... 6-5 special. Now, if you look at what it was like, it wasn't exactly how we define rock and roll, but it was different then. It was completely different to what yeah. the rest of the things that the BBC were putting on. And yeah. the one, the person that came out of that, for me, was Tommy Steele. He was huge, absolutely huge. He was a big rock and roller. I know people look back now and they say, well, he wasn't all that good, was he? Was He was really better as an entertainer, but he was. And the kids absolutely loved him. There was riots at his concerts. He sold lots and lots of records. And he was the first person to have a number one album in the British album charts with the Tommy Steele story. And just to finish that bit off, that film, the Tommy Steele story, was out the same time as Love Me Tender by Elvis. And they were both pretty similar with their audiences. Well, Tommy Steele came out of that Larry Parnes school, didn't he? Where they yeah. chose that friendly first name, you know, the boy yeah. next door, and then a, a sort of rock and roll sort of surname to go with it. Yeah, he came from, he also did the, the Two Eyes Coffee Bar, yeah, which most people seemed to come from in those days. But back then, they thought rock and roll was going to die out very quickly, so he had a few hits with his rock and roll stuff, like Come yeah. On, Let's Go, and then... They got him off onto Little White Ball and family yeah. entertainment, didn't they? Yeah, singing the blues and all kinds of things. But as you say, I mean, people had to make a living, didn't they? And they couldn't see any future at all in rock and roll. Yeah. Well, my first experiences, well, I suppose, was the radio. Uh, at home, my parents weren't into music at all. But yeah. the radio was on. And I used to listen to all of those uh, comedy songs, the Bernard Cribbins, Digging <laughs> a Hole, and Nelly the Elephant. And then... When I got to be about 10, that was when I started getting into rock music. Uh, I mean, there was Skiffle Boom that was going on and Lonnie Donegan, Rock Island Line. And I had a friend who was uh, into Buddy Holly. And he used to have all the Buddy Holly singles. And he used to buy Buddy Holly and Adam Faith, and that was it. And, he, and when he got fed up with them, he used to sell them to me for pennies. So I got a collection of Buddy Holly and Adam Faith singles. Mm-hmm. And it's only looking back now, I can see that Adam Faith was trying to be Buddy Holly, but the British production thing wasn't quite the same as American production. They didn't have a clue, really. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's what got me into to rock music, mm-hmm. was was Buddy Holly and, and Adam Faith, and mm-hmm. then the skiffle with Lonnie Donegan. Yeah, well, I, got, I mean, I had also an elder brother who used to, was in the Air Force at the time, and he used to bring home singles at the weekend, and that's when I got into Chuck Berry with Sweet Little Sixteen and uh, Johnny Be Good and lots more Eddie Cochran and things like that. But that lasted, I seem to remember, it lasted until about 1959. 
then it all sort of sort of faded away. At least the rock and roll side of it. It was very, very much became sanitised middle of the road music. Mm. And I moved on to. Uh, I still listen to American stuff, but I through for one for probably a couple of reasons because I think people forget the BBC. Really, you could write off apart from yeah. Saturday Club. Saturday Club was good, mm. and that started about fifty-seven. There was some good stuff. I mean, all the if uh, American rockers came over, they all did Saturday Club on mm. Saturday morning, which was okay. But generally speaking, request programs were you just didn't get any rock and roll on there. Yeah. But there was Radio Luxembourg. Yeah. Now, really, yeah. I think most people listened to Radio Luxembourg, yeah. didn't they? I think that was. That and you could one. just, it used to fade in and out. I, yeah. I can remember getting down the bed covers after I meant to be in bed, <laughs> playing Radio Luxembourg yeah. under the covers. It faded in and out and in and out. But they weren't the only only radio station playing anything decent. But, but you see, there was also American Forces Network. I didn't get that. Yeah, see, my mum used to listen to American Forces Network. I haven't a clue why she listened to it, but she did. And they played all sorts of stuff. They weren't limited by the, like the BBC were. They just played everything out the American charts and right. there was some good stuff. Well, I didn't cotton on to Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley and that sort of thing until most probably 1963. Yeah. And, uh, but I did discover Little Richard. Yeah. And Little Richard, when I was 12 years old, just blew me away. And I, I had that album, Here's Little Richard, and it was just fantastic, raw rock and roll. Mm. Well, I remember listening to that. That was the first time I ever heard Long Tall Sally. It was just totally different to anything I'd heard. There was rock and roll, and then there was Little Richard and Long Tall Sally. Yeah. Didn't understand any of the words, but it mm. was really fast. Really fast, and I yeah. like that. Well, Little Richard made Elvis Presley look quite tame, particularly when Elvis, after he joined the army, was coming out yeah. all that pop stuff, really. Yeah. But Little Richard was the real thing. And I was just knocked out by that raw sound that he produced, and yeah. it was so exciting yeah. for a 12, 13-year-old to have that. I remember going in, we had a school fate, and I took my record player in, and here's Little Richard. And I became a, a living jukebox and... Uh, paid requests and they just played that all afternoon and yeah. I must have made it ooh, at least five shillings <laughs> but, yeah well I get about in the early 60s very much I got into uh, English instrumental bands I mean there was I, a when the shadows came out of the Cliff Richard thing and following on from there there were so many instrumental bands appearing yeah and, you know, some were good, some were great. They never quite made it. The ones I liked, I think the Outlaws, who had a very early... Chas Hodges was in it. And also Richie Blackmore. Very young was Richie. Gosh. It must have been about 17, 18. But the thing about it was, I think, if in retrospect, looking back at all these bands that were around England at the time, and they were all banging away with the suits and doing shadows numbers, but they weren't always doing shadows numbers a lot did it a yeah. lot did vocals as well but they were becoming bands and they were becoming good bands yeah. and it was all ready for the explosion well the shadows uh, shadows was the first album that i yeah. ever bought um shadows greatest hits yeah that was absolutely fabulous and i remember when apache came out and buying the single 
That was absolutely incredible. Yeah. But people also forget that Cliff Richard, the first album he did was absolute rock and roll. Yeah. That was a good album. Yeah. You know, it was only the same thing happened to him that happened to yeah. Tommy Steele. Yeah. That uh, they took him into middle of the road rubbish, didn't they? Really? Yeah. Well, listening to, I remember that was the, the first big band I ever saw with the Shadows. I saw them in Hull, right. and I was so impressed. I mean, they were very, very good. And this is like was that the original 96, lineup, the original lineup with with Jet with Harris. Jet yeah. Harris, yeah. And uh, I mean, Jet was a great bass player. Mm. I mean, he really he was, had the looks. He's well, very didn't underestimated. He? Yeah, he just had a few problems with Jet. Yeah. I think was drink um, mainly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he went on for ages, you know, because he was when Jeff Beck started the Jeff Beck group with Rod Stewart. He wanted Jet as the bass player. Did he? Yeah, and, but unfortunately Jet didn't turn up, which was... Yeah. But I think that was after he'd had his accident, hadn't he? Because he had a dreadful oh, car yeah, crash, he did, didn't he? Yeah. which set him back years. But go, anyway, going back to those uh, instrumental bands in England, I mean, there were bands all over the country who were good. And as soon as, as, soon as they, the Beatles arrived, it just exploded, all of it. Yeah, that's right. I remember the Spotniks. Remember those? Yeah. They used to speed up their, their records. Bo Winberg. <laughs> Bo Winberg, yeah. Yeah, because he's that just... great. He only died, I think it was last year or the year before. Did he? And he was still playing. And he was still playing Orange Blossom Special. Yeah. At 90 miles an hour, yeah. Yeah. They used to be in space suits, didn't they? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was... But all that... But I think... It all stopped. Well, it all sort of changed, didn't it? Well, when... there's certain watersheds, aren't there? I yeah. mean, if you look back, I mean, the Beatles were a watershed, and yeah. everything that happened before the Beatles was mm. just blown away, wasn't it? Really? Yeah. And uh, I think they they set off a different different type of music. Yeah. I, I mean, I often think, you know, I've often th- I've thought about thought about it quite a lot when they they talk about Merseybeat and. Yeah, it was huge, wasn't it? Oh, massive! It was yeah. absolutely huge. But if you look at Merseybeat, the only real original band to come out of Liverpool was the Beatles, weren't they? They wrote their own songs, yeah, which were totally different to anybody else. Most of the other, when the music, the the producers and Armand went in there and pulled them all out, they were all doing songs that were written by. Probably odd one or two by the Beatles, but most of them were done with either copies of American songs or songs that were written by English tunesmiths. Well, the, the Mersey sound, I mean, that started up in the early 60s, really. And yeah. They had two, a couple of years before it was picked up, yeah. and they were, they were really doing all the R&B and yeah. rock and roll stuff from America, which was being brought in on yeah. those merchant ships. But they weren't doing anything original. And Beatles were the only one doing yeah, but things that there were was, original. If you go around, I mean, I, were, I remember Hull at the time when I used to go to see bands, and before before it all happened, and you know, bands were also doing rock and roll stuff and R and B stuff, and yep. it was a pretty general. And I've often thought if if the Beatles had been anywhere else, if they'd come out, if they'd arrive, if they were from Birmingham. It would have been Birmingham mania because yeah. the they would have the I mean there was the bands there, and the A and R men would have just gone in like a shot, and they would have had them all out. Yeah, because I think England was ready for it. I mean, you look at the bands in Liverpool, in London at the time. I mean, the Flamingo Club and places like that. I mean, there were some really good bands and real musicians. Mm. But when 
when the beat thing came, they sort of uh, got involved with it. It was it was quite incredible to be 13, 14 yeah. at that point in time when Mersey Beat hit. Yeah. And you look back on that now, and it was a very sanitised sound that they produced. There was very few of the bands that came out of that era yeah. that actually had a, a good, raw sort of sound. I, I think the Searchers did it on their first couple of albums, mm. uh, the Beatles and Big Three, that EP that the Big yeah. Three produced, that was just absolutely superb. Yeah. But most of the stuff that we think of as Merseybeat, Billy J. Kramer yeah. and Jerry and the Pacemakers, yeah. they were sanitised yeah, and, very, and very poorly so. produced, really. But when you, when you look back, I mean, if you, I'm sure you've heard that uh, that live EP by the Merseybeats. Yeah, fabulous. Now, that was amazing, because you'd yeah. never have thought the Merseybeats were like that, would no, you? No, no. But their club act was totally different well, that's to right. the singles they were putting out. Yeah, and same th- with a lot of them. Yeah. And it, I remember those Oriole albums. Do you yeah, remember those yeah. Oriole albums? Yeah. This is Mersey Beat. This is Mersey Beat. Well, they had uh, poorly recorded, but really great sort of acts that were doing their stage act. And yeah. uh, that really was an exciting sort of album. Yeah. I remember at the time getting hold of those, and it was it was exciting. Yeah. It was a uh, we've discovered our own music. I think. Yeah. I think for me, uh, thirteen, fourteen. To have Mersey beat was like the first time I thought, this is ours, yeah. this is for us. And before yeah. that, it was rehashing rock and roll. Yeah, I think that was pretty general though, wasn't it? When you think about all over the country, I mean, there was an English sound. Yeah. Probably they were doing the covers and stuff like that, but it was an English version of it, wasn't it? Yeah, it was very And much it was so. what people wanted. Yeah. And as soon as the Beatles started, they just came out the woodwork. Yeah. And there was bands from all over the place. Well, I can still remember that first time when I heard the Beatles, which was, I saw a standing there, and it was my friend Tony who sat me down in his bedroom and said, I'm going to play you this, and he'd just bought Please Please Me, the, the album, yeah. and played me that track, and it just blew me away. It was I saw a standing there. It was totally different to anything else I'd yeah. ever heard, and the yeah. power of it was just immense. Yeah. And as a 13-year-old, to, to sit and hear that, it just altered life, really. Yeah, That was amazing. But the way they were, I mean, I remember those first few singles, they were always on Calendar and the Northern yeah. TV programmes, local TV programmes, yeah. doing the new single. And they were very much, they came across very much as ordinary lads, yeah. I mean, I know that's that's a sort of a, a cliched thing, but they did come across. Yeah, they weren't sanitised. That's right. They talked, they laughed, and they joked just like everybody else, and they just became so big. Yeah, and I think people it was s- good that Epstein allowed them to express themselves yeah. and be that because he tidied them up a lot. Yeah, but only to a, an extent. And yeah. the other bands, I think, he tidied up too much. You know, uh, they don't. I mean, Mersey Beat only lasted a year, didn't yeah, it? Yeah. Sixty-three, and that was it. And by the end of Mersey Beat, we started getting those other bands coming through. Yeah. Uh, you know, Rolling Stones, The Animals, Pretty Things, The Who. There was just one after another. Yeah. Every week seemed to be a different band, yeah. and that beat boom that started there, the Kinks. There was yeah. so many great bands that came yeah. out of that year but you'd also have this <laughs> phenomenon this strange phenomenon in England <laughs> the blues booms yep. there was, I mean there's been two or three blues booms but the, there was the first one wasn't there which Alexis Corner and Cyril Davis and those people I mean 
when you think, I mean, where this came from, I mean, they'd virtually got hold of a, a totally alien music from across the Atlantic, and it just became huge. Yeah. And all these, oh, I always think all these, all these middle class lads, swapped, Ellen Shapiro, and Matt Munro for <laughs> Owlin Wolf and Chuck Berry and all these people, and the musicians that came out of that, that. To some extent, it's still around today. I mean, the Beatles, they're not, sorry, not the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. I mean, they came out of that first beat, blues boom, didn't they? Yeah. And but the person who started all of that was Chris Barber. Yeah. And Chris Barber was really into the blues, and he brought across people like Muddy Waters. Yeah. And I think having those American uh, blues artists across enabled a lot of very young people like Keith Richards to see authentic blues and that's what got them into it and then you had uh, the Alexis Corner Blues Incorporated yeah. so important and such a seminal band and that's what spawned that first British blues boom yeah. really and then you got I mean on the on the heels of that you got the folk blues festival concerts which came round yeah with that almost, was a little bit later yeah though, but it was followed on and the I mean yeah. there was a big story of a Oh, it was in. It was on in Manchester, and almost half the guitar players of the last fifty years went to see this. That's with right. Yeah, Muddy Waters and Little Walter, and all those people on it. Yeah, Sonny Boy, Boy Williamson. See, I, when I was fourteen, I was most probably into all the Mersey Beat pop stuff. Yeah. But I had a friend who was into the blues, and uh, my friend Dick Brunin only was interested in blues, and he used to play me. Lightning Hopkins and Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf and it took me a while to get my ear into it because you couldn't understand the lyrics at first but yeah. once you got tuned in it was just fabulous so I was listening to Mersey Beat and the blues yeah. and then I had another friend who was into Woody Guthrie so I had these three different things going on at the same time and then Bob Dylan came out, yeah. and uh, that was a major watershed yeah. for me. But you get, I mean, it's the, the the blues thing, though. I mean, it didn't mean anything in America at the time. No, nothing. Black people they didn't want anything it, didn't to they? do with it. It was Uncle Tom's music. Yeah. Yet here it was absolutely incredibly big. I mean, it, there's the stories where they, the Stones went on. I think that program called Shindig, and they wouldn't go on it unless Howlin' Wolf was on it. Yeah, that's right. And that was a fabulous performance. Yeah, by it was a great. Well, he was yeah. marvellous, wasn't he? Yeah. But all this, but it's this blues boom. You got the blues boom, the beat boom, and it's all bands, isn't it? All playing. Well, it's quite strange when you look at nineteen sixty four because of all those bands that we were just talking yeah. about, there was the blues ones that were very sort of into the blues. Yeah. Them, Rolling Stones, Yardbirds. They they all came out of that blues boom, but there was a more mod one that took the blues and adapted a little bit, like the Kinks and yeah. the Who. Yeah. So you had that mod sound coming through, and that was based on the sort of swamp blues more mm. than the authentic Chicago blues, and they were enormous. So you had so many different things going on. Yeah. Then you had other ones like Small Faces, yeah. with producing a different sort of sound, yeah. and I think that beat thing set off. In different directions. Yeah, because you had a, I mean, about, there was a second blues boom as well, wasn't there? About 60, 65, 66, where Fleetwood Mac came out of. Yeah. Chicken Shack, Christine Perfect, and John Mayle. 
was at his peak then with, yeah, that with was Eric Clapton. The seminal band that wasn't it? came out of it yeah. as well, you know, and it boosted it. And that went, to, I mean, the the people they produced that produced was amazing, you know. I mean, Fle- I mean Fleetwood Mac, Fleetwood Mac, yeah, I Chicken mean, Shack. Do you remember yeah. Duster Bennett? Duster Bennett, yeah, yeah. the one man, amazing one man band. Yeah, incredible. He died, you know, coming back from a gig, yeah. went to sleep in a car yeah. and had a crash. I'm not surprised. Yeah, but it was great. Was just he used to play a lot with Fleetwood Mac. Yep. I think I think he's played on a couple of Fleetwood Mac records. Well, they were on that Blue Horizon label. Blue Horizon label, yeah. label. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, that was yeah. brilliant label. But all that '60s, it, I think <laughs> it all sort of came from from <laughs> the blues boom and the uh, the blues and the Mersey beat thing. And well, Cream that. came out of that as well, yeah, didn't yeah. they? And uh, they started really as a blues yeah, group, yeah. but they evolved very quickly. If you look at Fleetwood Mac and if you look at Cream, yeah. they rapidly became more psychedelic, more progressive yeah. rock. Yeah. And what was going on at the time there yeah. was. Hendrix coming across and yeah, bringing course, a different thing. Everything. But if you, again, it's another thing, you know. If you look at Cream and how long mm. they were together and what they did, I mean, it was only a couple of years. At most, yeah. That was Two all. years. Yeah, then you go back. It's the same with Buddy Holly if you go back to the, uh, yeah. the rock and roll time. These people were only around for a couple of years. Yeah. But the stuff they did and the music they left. Well, Hendrix was... was yeah, Hendrix well, is another one. How long was he? It was, what... Two, three years? Two, three years, yeah. Yeah. And, and you think when he recorded in that period of time, I think there was only three official albums out when, yeah, he, when he was, died. Yeah. But uh, I must have about 100 hours of, of yeah. stuff. And, and it's still coming out, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, And it's still Incredible. coming out. Yeah. And I could, I could listen for hours to some of that stuff with him noodling away in the, in the studio. It was just absolutely incredible. Yeah. Absolutely, and there was all the. I mean, and by this time, hadn't it? By this time, the Americans had sort of retaliated, hadn't they? Yeah. Well, they'd gotten on to it. Yeah. The, yeah. Paul Butterfield, and yeah, uh, there was some right. great stuff. Yeah, and uh, well, the bands just got. I mean, a lot of the American bands at the beginning of it were definitely a bit ropey. I mean, the classic one. That I mean, it's probably sounds sacrilege to say it, but I remember. I really thought the Grateful Dead would be wonderful because I think I was attracted more or less by the name. For anybody called Grateful Dead, it's got to be good. Yeah. And I bought the first album and I didn't think much to it at all. I thought it was really third rate and I got, I just forgot about them completely. Yeah. But coming back years later, they were a different ball game altogether. Oh, yeah. They were a great band right the way up to the passing of Jerry Garcia, you know. Yeah. I saw the the band that, uh, after Garcia had died, I saw the band play in San Francisco. Absolutely amazing band. They were called Fervor after Ken Kesey's... uh, (laughs) You know Ken Kesey had that van that they went round in filming the... Well, the Merry Pranksters. (laughs) Yeah, with their acid tests and everything. Well, they called the band Fervor. They were absolutely amazing. Amazing three-hour concert. Yeah. Absolutely well, they incredible. used to do that, didn't they? I mean, they they were noticed for it. I mean, there was that big joke, wasn't there? The, the, the Grateful Dead are bringing a three-album set out after the European tour, and we know which three songs they're playing. <laughs> right. <laughs> what was the first band you ever saw live? In? Well, I say that the Shadows were the first one, but at the, after that, I saw loads of local bands. I mean, but 
I think the next big one after that was the big three. You saw the big three? I saw the big three at the wow. uh, at this majestic ballroom in Hull. So what were they like? Well, they were brilliant. Johnny Gustafsson. But it was funny, those bands, I, in a short time I saw, and I saw the big three, and I also saw Dave Berry and the Cruisers. Right. When he, I mean, he'd only be about 20 with Dave then, and they were absolutely brilliant. Mm. I mean, it was all rhythm and blues stuff. Yeah. I mean, I know he had all these bits and bobs, but he was absolutely spot on. Yeah. His first band I ever saw was the British Birds with Ron Wood. Oh, right. And that was one of the most exciting things I've ever been to, and one of the best gigs. And that was at the Walton Palais, you know, where Jonathan King used to go and pick up all those kids from there, had quite a reputation. But it was a real seedy place. I mean, there was a knife fight out in the uh, in the yard before I went in. Yeah. I was 14 years old and I I was going into a different world. Yeah. And inside it was all gloomy and there was all these uh, teddy boys standing around with greased back hair and sideburns. And yeah, it was an amazing sort of place. But the atmosphere was just absolutely spot on. And that band were just incredible. The excitement of them. I remember them all doing all of that really loud beat music, the synchronisation of things. And they looked the part with their Chelsea boots and long hair. It was just absolutely incredible. Yeah. And that was the first band I ever saw. I think uh, one of the most influential bands I ever saw was when we were down in London for one weekend at college. It was going to see the House of Commons, I think. And we went to the Flamingo on a Saturday night. And... John Mayles Blues Breakers run, but it was with Eric Clapton before, mm. just before the Beano album, and they were doing all mm. the songs, and it just blew your mind away <laughs> completely. But the Flamingo was interesting because it was the place where that was heavily involved in the perfume warfare. All right, they all used to go down there and dance, and I think that's where a lot of yeah. the people involved in it actually met. But it was so all sorts of strange people in there. But the yeah. atmosphere was unbelievable. It was very multiracial for me, oh, wasn't it? It was, yeah. yeah. But I've have ne I've never ever been to a club like it. There was no violence, but it was, it was just I don't know. The, it was you could feel the atmosphere, and when the band came on, oh, it was just like something else. I mean, I'd seen Eric Clapton with the Yardbirds. And he was very smart. He looked like the mod from round the corner. Yeah. And he played nice little twinkly solos. But this was different ball game altogether. Yeah, it yeah. was all your love, the old Otis Rush thing. And it was just oh. like, it was just like a knife. That was real blues, wasn't it? Yeah. Just he was like playing superb back then, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was just off the planet. Well, for me, Clapton, it was male and then cream. And yeah. after that, you know, it was cabaret for me. Well, after, yeah, I, I mean, I think when they go on about impressive, al important albums, I think the Beano album by John Mills Bluesbreakers, yeah. it was a life, a world changer. Yeah. Guitarists changed completely. Yeah. And everybody wanted to play a Les Paul and sound like Eric Clapton. And they've been doing really that ever since. But you see, John Mayall went on to include some absolutely superb guitarist yeah. I mean I remember seeing him when uh, he had uh, uh, Greeny in, in yeah. the band and he was absolutely incredible Yeah, he, absolutely superb guitarist yeah. and I preferred him to Clapton when he was with Mayo yeah. and then you know when he left to form Fleetwood Mac 
Uh, Pete Green was just absolutely mind-boggling, and yeah. they were a brilliant band. I used to love going and dancing yeah. to them. Yeah. Well, yeah. then you got after that, you see, in comes Mick Taylor. That's right. And Mick was a heck of a guitar player. Yeah, he was superb. Yeah, and of course, that, the Stones nicked him, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, that album he was on, the Crusade, wasn't it? The Crusade album. Yeah. There were some lovely solos on That's there. That's right. But Well, I think the, but the Stones' best stuff was when Mick Taylor was with them. He, I think he added a, an element to the Stones yeah, that yeah. transformed them. I think you absolutely because I think Brian Jones <laughs> before Brian started to well he had problems but still they started to show because he was very influential in the early days with yeah. I mean Ruby Tuesday and all those things I mean they probably Mick and Keith probably wrote the songs but Brian was very important in the yeah. arrangements. And made him a little. He bit was the best musician different. in the band, wasn't and then he? when he when he lost it, yeah. But in came in came Mick Taylor, and they it was they, they sort of got this edge, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. It yeah. moved away, and it became a really hard rock and roll edge. And he's playing. I mean, stuff like Little Red Rooster and those kind mm. of things. Not sorry, like Little Red Rooster, Midnight Rambler. Yeah, Midnight Rambler. Great songs. I, I don't think people realise how much. Brian Jones actually it was his band the Rolling yeah, Stones was, was his yeah. band and uh, I think he got shoved out by, by Keith and Mick and uh, he never recovered from it he was peripheralised and I, I think he just went to pieces really Yeah. Well, I don't know if it was a breakdown there was a lot of drugs involved yeah. uh, but he just wasn't there was he well I remember yeah. reading that book A Stone Alone by Bill Wyman yeah and Bill was talking about it. I mean, and Brian in the early days was definitely the man. I mean, all of it. Mm. I mean, Brian had his own car. I mean, he travelled in a separate car to the rest of them. But then Lou Golden saw that Mick and Keith could write songs. Yeah. And that's when it started, and he started to be margin marginalised, which um, it was. It, it was. Uh, it was Brian's guitar playing on oh, Little Red Rooster, oh, wasn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. And he I nailed mean, it absolutely perfectly. I mean, it was Brian's band, mm -hmm. wasn't it? He had a band. I mean, the band was... I yeah. mean, that oh, was number one, and it was yeah. a Howling Wolf song yeah, like that. Yeah. Absolute blues, and it yeah. got to number one. That but that fir the first album, the first Rolling Stones album, that's another absolute classic. Yeah. It really was. I mean, it was an absolute belter, wasn't it? There was Everybody some great blues songs yeah, on there. Yeah, great stuff on there. I just want to make love to you. Yeah. That Muddy Waters yeah. cover was just brilliant. Yeah, they, I mean, yeah. Yeah. and that was Brian. King B. Yeah, yeah you know, Brian was behind it all. Yeah, and eventually, you know, he was he was definitely he was definitely eased out of it. There's no yeah. doubt about that. But, but did uh, did his sort of collapse? happened before or after he was being eased out? Well, uh, so going back to what Bill Wyman said, Bill said, it happened, Mick uh, Brian didn't turn up for recording sessions. Right. As, but Bill said he had really serious asthma problems. I mean, he wasn't right. a strong bloke. No. And he'd suffered with it all his life. And he said, in retrospect, he said, he thinks we should have been more accommodating because he definitely was ill. Uh, nothing to do with drugs. I mean, mm. drugs yeah. obviously pushed it all on, but he w he wasn't a well person yeah. at all. 
Um, but he also had that big ego thing, and I think oh, that yeah, went to his head as well. And uh, you, know, you can see that. I remember at Monterey seeing yeah. him, and he was going around pretending he was some sort of prince, wasn't yeah. he? Really? But I mean, there were, think about it though. I mean, you're, you're a young lad, you suddenly become absolutely huge, yeah. you've got loads of money, and the worst thing is you've got people telling you that yeah. you're great. You I live mean, in a bubble, don't you? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, some people can cope with it. It doesn't bother them. But some people, you can't cope yeah. with it, really. But it must, it must be very strange to have that... You need to have that ego to be able to go out on stage yeah, in front yeah. of tens of thousands of people and perform. Yeah. You've got to think you're really good to be able to do that. Yeah, I agree And if you haven't that. got that, I don't think you can perform. No. But at the same time... It eats you away, doesn't it? Oh, I think it does. You know, the same thing that happened with Brian Jones, I think it happened with Van Morrison as well. Yeah. Uh, the second band I ever saw was Them, the yeah. original Them, and they came across and uh, Baby Please Don't Go was in the charts, yeah. and they played the Wharton Palais, and I saw them there, and they were smashing. You know, after the gig, they invited everybody backstage and they gave out these these um, postcards and they were all signed by the band. Yeah. I got two of those. Um, I wish I'd had them now. But Van Morrison was really friendly and everything. You see him later and he's developed this star persona. He won't talk to anyone or do anything. I think it eats away people. I think, oh, you know, it does. I think it's definitely did with Van Morrison. I mean, he's noted, isn't he? As, mm. I mean, he, even Spike Milligan said he was a strange bloke. <laughs> which is coming Spike from, Milligan, coming from yeah. Spike, yeah. yeah. But he did. But I think after, when you, you know, when going back to Brian Jones and F and Mick Taylor, this, the 70s came along, didn't they? And it was interesting to see how it all developed in the 70s. Yeah. Because I think you had, the, the late 60s, you had all this, the stuff from San Francisco, didn't you? Which came, oh, yeah. which was really strong, yeah, huge. And then you had the Woodstock at the end, mm. and Woodstock made a lot of bands, didn't it? I mean, Santana and people like but if, that. If you look at the the strange phenomena that happened in the late sixties, mm. we moved from singles into albums, yeah, and a totally different thing. And we had two scenes going, didn't we? Yeah. We had the underground rock scene. Yeah with bands like Hendrix and whatever crossing over, but we had the chart stuff. Yeah. And it's interesting to see back now, when you look at the media, yeah. how they represent the 60s. They go for all the chart stuff. Yeah. But the, the big scene was the underground scene. Yeah. And that was where all the bands like Traffic and Hawkwind yeah. and Pink Floyd, they were all playing an underground scene there. Yeah. And bands came across from America, like The Doors, mm. Love... Uh, Buffalo Springfield and that was all part of an underground scene Um, and that's where Monterey and Woodstock and things came out of it came out the underground yeah that's very true yeah but it's funny you know I I found when I was when I was working in the music business Mm -hmm. how there was the two sides the underground and there was the charts now fans if you were an f- underground fan, you were an underground fan. Yeah. If you liked Hendrix, <coughs> you didn't like the Tremolos, <laughs> and you didn't like That's anything right. that was in the charts yeah. at all. It was just, pers- there were persona non grata. Yeah. Yet when I went into us in the business, I found that the musicians were totally different. Yeah. They all got on. 
no matter who they were, yeah, and what bands they played in, they all got on. They were just chatting. I mean, you'd have, I'm just for argument's sake, you'd probably have a member of the Tremolos sat with Eric Clapton having a chat and having a cup of tea and the rest of it. And come, but they were musicians. Yeah. That's what they had in common. Whatever they played. But, yeah. you know, but you go see Certainly a Certainly not what... Uh, you go see a yeah. fan. You go see a fan. Poor. Yeah. It's, and uh, you you read the music papers and... Hmm. But old John Peel was a bit like that, you know. I mean, John Peel, he could be a bit narrow-minded at times, but other times he wasn't. Right. He'd like things that you'd never think he would have liked. Yeah, quirky stuff. Yeah, quirky stuff. I always remember in the 60s, yeah, it would be, no, the early 70s, he decided he liked that uh, Carpenter's single, Goodbye to Love, right. which had the wonderful guitar solo <laughs> in the middle. And he used to play it and play it and play it. Gosh. And I thought, yeah, well, and, he, and it was the yeah. same, it was the same with the... Uh, Teenage depression, wasn't it? Yeah. That he liked by the undertones. I mean, yeah, teenage kicks. Teenage kicks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when he said, when he said, uh, he, st- he had to stop his car because he was in tears the first time he heard it. I thought mm, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, he did like that. Yeah. Yeah. They played it at his funeral. The, the didn't thing they? is, when you when you look back on the sixties, yeah. we were so incredibly lucky because yeah. all those bands were accessible. They mm. were playing all the time, and they were playing small clubs. Yeah. Not only that. You didn't have to pay much to get in. No. I was playing 12 and a half P to get in to see a band. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. I, I remember seeing Led difference. Zeppelin for 25 pence yeah. in, a, in a small club. Yeah. Uh, absolutely superb. And Pink Floyd were available. You'd go on and see them in pubs and things. It was just an incredible time. And not only that, there wasn't any security. You could go and talk to the guys after. Yeah. So after a gig, you could go and have a chat with someone. About how, and they were ordinary people. They didn't put on these airs and graces. Yeah, I remember there was a, there was a poster. It would be, nine, it would be about 1966, 67, for the Skyline Ballroom in Hull. Yeah, right. And they had three acts. There was The Move, Cat Stevens and Jimi Hendrix. Mm. And there were 12 and 6 each. Yeah. Tickets, but if you bought all three, you could have more for thirty shillings, which is one pound fifty. Yeah, that's for three bands, and top of the. I mean, they were all top of the. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's different now. I know yeah. the whole business has changed now completely. So yes, I mean, with the way they don't get royalties and everything that goes on with it. Mm. But it's changed completely. Well, there used to be a whole lot of free gigs. I mean, I'd go yeah, regularly free. to free gigs. Hyde Park was yeah. all free. Yeah. And you'd have the top bands there. Some absolutely super. Well, you see, I mean, the Rolling Stones did. The, there was a big concert yeah. there. And I saw Blind Faith. Yeah, so did I. Mean, I. They were huge. Absolutely, absolutely huge massive, concerts, yeah. weren't they? Absolutely Yeah, but massive. before that, there was smaller ones where yeah. there was four or five hundred people. Yeah. And people like Soft Machine and yeah. Pink Floyd and Edgar Broughton band. Yeah. Absolutely super. But there was in East Park in Hull, I remember there was one which had Wishbone Ash and Edgar Broughton and uh, I think the Rats were on with Mick Ronson and a couple more things, you know. Yeah. And it was, but it was that summer people accepted it, yeah, you know, they liked that's it. Right. And that's yeah. what people did. And Roy Harper was <laughs> compare in Hyde Park. <laughs> he used to compare the whole thing. And then when the Stones came along, they wouldn't let him on, wouldn't let him on stage. It was absolutely amazing. But, uh, that Stones concert in Hyde Park, it's quite a mute, well, it's not amusing, but 
I remember <laughs> when you listen to it, when we listened to it, when it was an Iron Pie, it really wasn't that good. But the sound and the rest of it. Yeah. And it was the first time they'd played live with Mick, Mick Taylor. Now, if you listen to it, you listen to the DVD of it, Yeah. it's great. It's absolutely spot on. So I think somebody's done a little bit they of fine-tuning, I think, with it. Yeah, most probably. But yeah. It was an exciting gig. Oh, though, it was great. Yeah. It was It was so many people there, wasn't yeah, there? it? So was, many people there. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they expected to get that many, but, I mean, you think that the, the possibility of trouble at a thing like that. Yeah. So going back to the blues thing, mm -hmm. did you get to see any of the old blues guys? Yep. I saw Sonny Boyle Williamson. Oh, I wish I'd seen at, him. At uh, yeah. the university. And uh, Little Walter. Right. I liked harmonica plays. I saw him at the gondola. But he was absolutely... I think he'd had too much to drink. Yeah. But he still was a wonderful player. Yeah, I saw and Jimmy I, Reed and he yeah. was completely pissed out of his mind. But it was still absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I absolutely saw amazing. Muddy Waters at the uni. And it was interesting because... I mean, I was so fortunate in... I knew Ed Bicknell was a secretary, so he knew I liked him, so I went in the dressing room and had a chat with Muddy Waters. <laughs> but there was another bloke with me, Baz, Baz Davis, I think, I think they called him. But uh, I was sort of trying to talk to him about blues, and Baz, all he wanted to know was, did he like the Pink Floyd? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he, the thing about Muddy Waters was... He was so overpowering. That's the impression mm. I got. He was a big, thick-set man. Yeah. And he was very, very pleasant and very, very polite. Right. But uh, it was. I've always looked back on that, and it, I was so fortunate to have met him. Yeah, amazing. a man of, who was. I saw him so three much, times. So much influence on everything. Yeah, saw him three times. Yeah. But he was a, he was amazing. I saw him with Otis Spann on yeah. piano. Absolutely incredible. But uh, I was lucky because I went to those uh, blues festival things that they did yeah. at Hammersmith Odeon in yeah. London, and uh, I was able to catch people like Sunhouse, and Bucker White, yeah. and Skip James, and that was just shortly before they all died. Yeah. And Sunhouse was just absolutely amazing. And you're looking at somebody who was there who taught Robert Johnson how to play. Yeah. Mm. And just incredible. I look back on that and think how fortunate I was to be yeah. able to see those. The big one, though, is the one that missed out, I always think, is Elmore James. Oh, it? yeah. I mean, the poor bloke, he died just before. Just before, He would have yeah. been huge, wouldn't he? He was, he was incredible. I was just playing him this morning. Mm. Absolutely amazing, and I never get fed up with that guitar sound of his. He had a unique guitar yeah, sound. I don't sounded, think anybody ever did that. No, I don't think he did ever. I went, when I was in the states, I went over and found the place. I think it was on Hickory Street. Yeah, and he had a a little uh, shop there, which did electronic sounds and things, and he actually reorganised his guitar to put some electronics in it to make it sound different. Yeah. And that was an intentional thing. And it did. I don't think anybody's ever... A lot of people have tried to mimic it. Yeah. I mean, you oh think Lord, of... Jeremy Spencer. Jeremy Spencer <laughs> was a classic. Yeah. But George Thorogood as well, yeah. you know. But they never managed they to capture get, that it's, sound. It's that sound, they? isn't it? It's just incredible. Yeah. And it's the ones, I think, 
that were released on Sue. Mm-hmm. The Elmore James Memorial album. Oh, oh, yeah. The stuff like The Sky is Crying. Yeah. Oh, it's just like a knife cutting you. Yeah. And when you think, as, as you say, how it was recorded. I mean, there wasn't millions of pounds worth of stuff for him to oh, record no. on. No, amazing. Record in the back of a shop. Well, you look at Robert Johnson and mm. those two albums of his. Mm. And I can remember the, that King of the Delta Blues when yeah. that came out. And those tracks were recorded in the hotel room. Yeah. With him singing against a wall with just, you know, a portable yeah. recording thing. Yeah. Absolutely incredible tracks. Those, I, that album, the first one, the King of the Delta Blues singers with the brown cover. Yeah. I always remember buying that. And I, I never heard anything like it. No, no. He didn't sound like anybody else. Over the years you got to know and you like yeah. it and the rest. But he didn't sound like anybody else. It took some listening, actually, to get into mm. it because it didn't fit. Mm. It was Robert Johnson. See, he would have been enormous. He was down. They wanted him to, to come and do a, the blues thing at uh, Carnaby, uh, what was it, Carnegie Hall, Carnegie Hall in New York. And uh, he died. They found he died. They couldn't, couldn't get him along. And I think they took Josh White instead. Yeah. But uh, not quite the same calibre as Robert Johnson. Well, they're diff- they were different types, yeah, types of singers, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. Completely. Totally. But Robert Johnson would have been absolutely enormous if he'd still yeah. been around. Tell you one one blues play, you know that I think I've I've discovered over the last couple of years that I think really missed out and was ignored was Big Bill Brunsey, you know. Right. I mean I think Big Bill Brunsey is a wonderful singer and guitar player. But he seemed to have been ignored. He was more of folk blues. He yeah. did a, a lot of folk songs in, yeah. in amongst uh, his stuff, though, didn't he? And a lot of gospel. Yeah. But we could go on forever, couldn't we? I mean, we could go on forever talking about it. Yeah. I mean, I mean there was so much. I mean, we've lived through a time that uh, I don't think anybody else has. Music-wise, no. I don't think anybody will. No. I mean, there's been so many different things over the years. And music was central to... To our life, I think, really. Oh, I think so. And in such a way that I don't think people feel like that these days. I think it's background to the lives now, isn't it? Yeah. It's like wallpaper. Yeah. But we didn't, and we loved it. Yeah. And I'd do it all again. And so would I. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, that was an introduction to rock music in our misspent youth, doesn't it? Well, sort of. So. <laughs> Well, I'm not telling you all about my mistake, <laughs> <aren't> you? <laughs> We've got more to come. <laughs>